so this week, Revolutionary Roulette, uh, we are starting off with A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, and chapter one is Columbus, the Indians, and Human Progress, and get ready. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with with uh, the lack of human progress being the, the lack of human progress. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we'll get there. So let's, let's start off with the, uh, this is a good one. So it's straight from, straight from Chris Columbus himself. He wrote in his log, they brought us parrots and balls of cotton and spears and many other things, which they exchanged for the glass beads and hawks bells. They willingly traded everything they owned. They were well built with good bodies and handsome features. They do not bear arms, and they do not know them, for I showed them a sword. They took it by the edge and cut themselves out of ignorance. They have no iron. Their spears are made of cane. They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. It started out with Christopher Columbus immediately. Immediately. The human life that he has come across that he has no clue about whatsoever. He's uh, granted, uh, this is 1492. I believe they set sail in October. So, um, I think they landed in, in October and they landed in, uh, uh, he's talking about the Arawaks of the Bahama Islands. Okay. So they landed in October and he's already speaking coarsely uh to say it gently about people he's just met and i i get it it's 1492 and there's not too much in the way of sophistication and that's going to be an argument or an arguing point throughout this book however Mm -hmm. um these idiots grabbed the sword by the wrong end and cut themselves uh all they did was give us everything that they had and wanted to make friends and uh, tried to be cordial. Today's standards, which is pretty much the exact definition of uh, sophisticated, classified, unified. <laughs> but yeah. um, so again, we were talking about receipts last week. These are directly from uh, Christopher Columbus's log, his diary. Um, there were transcripts uh, that were, uh, well, transcribed. Uh, so um, let's start off with uh, with another one from uh, Columbus wrote, as soon as I arrived in the Indies, on the first island which I found, I took some of the natives by force in order that they might learn and might give me information of whatever there is in these parts. What did he want? In these parts. Gold. He wanted all the gold. So he's like, I'm taking you captive and you're going to tell me where the gold is. He basically considered, well, well first of all, uh, I, I hopefully I'm not jumping too far in regards to your notes or preparation. But first of all, um, he considered himself and others considered him to be a master sailor, along with tapestry and many other uh, great professions. And 33 days into a trip to Asia, he ends up in what he thinks is 
Asia. Right. He's... And it's <laughs> definitely not Asia. It's Hispaniola, um, which is now modern-day Cuba in the Dominican Republic area. And, or excuse me, I, actually, I think he originally landed in uh, what's now the Bahamas. Right. So, um, that, yeah, he moves on and he, go, he goes to uh, Hispaniola, which is what you like you mentioned now the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Um, so we'll, we'll get there in, in a second. Um, and so an, another, well, this is from Howard Zinn, um, like informed people of his time, he knew the world was round and he could sail West in order to get to the far East. Gotcha. But <laughs> he, never, he, he wouldn't have made it to Asia. he, wildly miscalculated he thought the world was much much smaller so um you know for as smart as this guy is uh, when it comes to knowing how big the world is he's a dumbass so um imagine a, a much smaller world and let's see so so he's he's on this expedition for spain um mm -hmm. Here's, here's a quick note about Spain. Its population uh, was mostly poor peasants, uh, worked for the, the nobility uh, who were 2% of the population and owned 95% of the land. That sounds, that sounds really familiar. It's so funny how that arrow translates so perfectly into today. You know. Talk about like Bernie Sanders, you know, the top 1% of the 1%. <laughs> I feel so bad for you. He's the one that got away. And I know <laughs> we're not trying to get into today's political aspects, but I know you have a fondness in your heart for Bernie. And I just want to say, I feel you, brother. I feel you. <laughs> um, so going back to your, uh, you know, where, where he landed. Um, so the reason he was going, he he told them like, I, I will go there. I'll go to India. Um, and he's like, I just need 10% of the profits. And um, you have to give me a new title called Admiral of the Ocean Sea. 10% like, uh, of the profits is what he was assuming was going to be copious amounts of gold. Um, what they also what they did realize was there was abundance of different spices and uh he was also going to get to be um i believe this is the proper terminology governorship of the newfound territories that he embarked upon so um that's those were just some other things besides the 10% and the uh admiral of the open sea title so um Sounded like he was uh, making great bargaining chips, but he eventually ends up. We'll get there. Yeah. Um, all right, hang on one second, because we might have a, uh, a a slight technical difficulty. So hang on one second, everybody. Gotcha. Yeah, folks, bear with us. Uh, we hear echo on our end, so we're trying to fix it real quick, see if we can get rid of it. I moved my mic back, tried to adjust it turn it down a little bit. Hopefully <laughs> that will take care of the issue.
Has anybody ever told you your determined face is sexy as hell? <laughs> no. So thank you. I'll take it. You're very well. I just want to test something on this. Uh... Sexy as hell. Hmm? No. So... Clip that. Save it. <laughs> I don't know why it keeps going to. Uh... Sexy as hell. <laughs> Already clipped it. Hmm. All right, hang on. Got YouTube on mute. I mean, I have just like the sound coming out of my computer so that there's no uh, feedback, which, you know, we can't. Last time we did it and there was no feedback I had on a set of cans. Let's see if that fixes the issue. I might be the only person in the world that actually checks for the L and the R when you put on a set of headphones. But, no, uh, I do this. <laughs> I do the same thing. Are we looking on feedback now? Not so bad. Not so good. Same. No, I mean, no, no feedback here. Okay. Okay. All right. We got, uh, we got it on YouTube now. I don't know what the, what the issue was. I didn't really do anything besides you plugging in your, uh, your headphones. Y'all turn me up in the headphones. Please tell me I turned that up. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Ready to move on. All right, folks, we're learning on the fly. <laughs> um, okay. So Columbus never would have made it to Asia wildly miscalculated. And, um, I kind of kind of wish that would have happened. I kind of wish he just died in the middle of the ocean, and uh, you know we would have ended up here some other some other way. Um, some sort of scumbaggery would have taken place between now and then. Um, but you do kind of wish he had the Gilligan Island treatment. Like Gilligan was a three-hour tour, and his was a thirty-three-day tour. So we're looking at a thousand percent increase. Uh, <laughs> you know. But anyway, continue, sir. So uh, this is my this is my this is my favorite part of the whole the whole chapter. We're only on chapter three here. I'm sorry, uh, on page three. So um, on October twelfth, this settles the you know was it October when they got so they got there in October. October twelfth, a sailor called Rodrigo saw the early <laughs> morning moon shining on white sands and cried out. So he must have said something like, "Land ho!" or whatever you know they they say or I. I see some land. Yeah. And um, <laughs> the first man to see land was supposed to get this yearly pension of um, what at the time was 10,000 uh, maravides for life. Um, but Rodrigo never got it. Columbus said, I, I saw that last night. Where, where were you? I saw that last night. So Rodrigo never got paid. Columbus, the shit bag, got <laughs> the yearly uh, payment of 10,000 Maravides. I did some research on Maravides. And okay. This isn't really important to the podcast whatsoever, but I put in a lot of effort to this. And you I Google Maravides, yeah. Well, <laughs> I did more than that because I had to use uh, mathematician stuff. Oh. Um, so I hope you had an eraser. <laughs> Maravides, 
what was it? 10 Maravides? 10,000. 10,000 Maravides was essentially 75 bucks in today's standards because you had to convert Maravides into pesos, um, actually into something else, then to pesos. Okay. And then each dollar US is right around 20 pesos. And I'm spent. But so, 70, uh, <laughs> so, so all that for $75 back then, which could have been, uh, was obviously a substantial amount of money, but okay. still, still, Rodrigo got fucked big yeah, time. Big, big time. <laughs> I saw hey, that last night. You were sleeping. Out, man. I see this. <laughs> what are you talking about, Rodrigo? I planned this shit out yesterday. Rodrigo, get your head out of your ass. Go get the rum. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, because the the Arawax didn't have any iron, but they what they did have the metal that they did have was a little bit of gold, which mm -hmm. they uh, they had like these gold ornaments in their ears or you know earrings. Um, I was gonna make an awful joke about how much does it cost to you know uh, pierce your ears. You know, it's about a buck an ear. Ah, they're safe. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I still do. I'm just going to leave right now. <laughs> All right. So this is, it, this get, it gets so much worse. It's not even funny. Like th that part was my favorite part, but it just, it gets way, way, way shittier uh, from here, here on out because they actually, um, you know, <laughs> they like crashed the boat into the island. So the, the boat was wrecked for as great a, you know, uh, sailor that he, experts sailor that he was, he still crashed on the land and um, had to recycle the the wood from um, the Santa Maria. He was essentially John Candy in summer rental when him and Scully originally set out to learn how to sail in the Fort Lauderdale area. Uh, for those of you who have seen the movie Summer Rental, you know what I'm saying. Continue, Robert. Nobody gets your 1980s references. It was a good film. <laughs> um, so uh, he, he Columbus, uh, sails to what is now Cuba um, from the Bahama Islands. And there he sees in the rivers, there are little golden bits of gold. Um, and I, <laughs> my, my thoughts went straight to, if you've ever... Uh, had the drink Goldschlager, the little right. gold flakes at the bottom of the the bottle. So I'm like imagining that, but Columbus took that as like there's these wild visions of gold fields, and you know he needs these Indians to show him where the gold fields are because he needs to pay back Fernandez and Isabella for this expedition that they sent them on. Because he made promises that his ass couldn't keep. That's what I was going to get to. Uh, he essentially had so many people invest in his. Um, this little expedition. Exactly. And he sees these little flakes that ends up being so difficult to mine in the long run and in the, and in the grand scheme of things. And it's essentially just uh, visions of grandeur that leads him astray. Yes. Al along with being a richer. 
So <laughs> visions of grandeur. That's very well said. So um, with the, the timbers from the Santa Maria that he crashed on the land, um, he builds a, a cute little fort, just, just a cute military base. You know, the first one on the, uh, on the Western hemisphere. And um, he called it Navidad Christmas <clears throat> because, you know, it's like Christmas when you, uh, enslave Indians and, and kill them for gold, right? Right. Um, so he, he leaves all the, the crew members there and he's like, find the gold, store it at the fort, do whatever you need to, kill these people, torture them to tell them, where, <laughs> to, for them to tell you where all the gold is, all the spices, all the metals, get all of it however you can. Um, he they immediately get into a fight with some Indians who refuse to uh, trade as many like uh, bows and arrows that he and his men wanted. Um, so immediately uh, kills two of them with their swords. Off to a great start. As soon as he lands in Cuba, he's going to kill two people. Great. I don't think a conscious played much of a role back then. And as we said, this book translates very well into today's uh, scheme of things. And conscious is an afterthought in today's market as well. That's exactly right. Um, so Christopher Columbus, um, he's he starts to write down descriptions of the land where he is. So here, here's a quote from him. Hispaniola is a miracle. Mountains and hills, plains and pastures are both fertile and beautiful. The harbors are unbelievably good. That's, that's probably all true. Um, here's where the lies come in. There are many wide rivers of which the majority contain gold. There are many spices and great mines of gold and other metals. Columbus reported uh, regarding the Indians, they are so naive and so free with their possessions that no one who has not witnessed them would not believe it. When you ask for something they have, they never say no. To the contrary, they offer to share with anyone. Um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up this part with as much gold as they need and as many slaves as they ask. Um, so that's, that's what he's trying to bring back to the majesties. He's bargaining. He's using the slaves as a bargaining chip because after he realizes that the lands are not as fertile as his, um, deceptive eyes have thought, um, he's like, okay, fuck it. Uh, I can't get you gold, but you know what I can get you? A shit ton of Arawak. Yep. Let's do it. Uh, uh, so he, he ends up, go ahead, Rob. I was just going to say one, one of the, you know, worst parts for me. Um, it's, it's full of this um, hiding behind religion and doing it for um, religious reasons. So an another quote from thus the eternal God, our Lord, gives victory to those who follow his way over apparent impossibilities. So, you know, let's just, uh, again, enslave people, murder them um, in the name of the Lord. Double chest that sky point. 
Body of Christ. Um, <laughs> to throw in a quick disclaimer, uh, that was the way they were taught. By no means am I defending the actions of Christopher Columbus, but mm -hmm. to fear the Lord, Savior, God, Jesus Christ, was exactly how they were brought up in that day and time. And that's carried on throughout century, century after century, 500 centuries later. Okay. So um, in his defense, he's speaking that terminology to the kings and queens which fronted his um, embarkment to a foreign land. Mm -hmm. um, whether today and you're listening and you have a religious belief in Christianity or you're an atheist or Muslim, uh, we're not trying to offend anybody when we talk about these different things. But what we are saying is that the backing of your malicious activities because Jesus Christ wrote a passage or there was a passage written in biblical terms mm -hmm. that you can use to defend your actions is bullshit. So that, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so because Columbus, so he, he goes back to uh, the majesties and he's like, I'm telling you, there's just so much. I can't. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's so much gold there. It's not even funny. So um, instead of three ships, they give him, and and I think it was a crew of 39 men. They give him 17 ships with 1,200 men, and um, it, it went from you know maybe go there get some gold and maybe spread some Catholicism while you're there. Um, but no, when you send that many men, uh, you're looking for maybe uh, two things, gold and slaves. That's it. Um, so they went from, you know, island hopping and um, just taking as many Indian captives as they possibly could. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it doesn't take uh, um a history professor to say that the way that things went about back in them times were awful and, and wrong. And, uh, but they were a word that we so often use today. They were savages in and of themselves because they didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. So, uh, their way of getting things that they wanted slash needed was to massacre. And, by doing so, um, instead of creating bonds and relationships that possibly could have furthered their intercontinental trade relations, if they would have had a broader thought of things, um, granted, I get it, we're just talking about the 14th century, or excuse me, 13th century. Um, so there's they could have been about it many different ways, but this was kind of ingrained into their psyche. Mm -hmm. So um, another one of my, my favorite parts here um, on when they go back, when they get back to Haiti um, with their, you know, 17 ships, I don't know if all 17 ships got, got there, but when they get back to Haiti, sailing, I doubt <laughs> uh, they, uh, found that the sailors um, that they left behind at Fort Navidad, 
Um, they all been killed in battle with the with the Indians. Um, the uh, the sailors. I don't even. I, I mean, you know, it's hard to even call them sailors because they're just like committing these awful, these atrocious crimes on, on humanity. But we'll call them sailors, I guess. I don't know what else to call well, them right now. And you take away the fact that not everybody that he threw onto this boat to help him travel across the country has experience in being a sailor. He just grabbed as many bodies as possible to help him load up the ship with the riches of another land. So right. these people aren't experienced. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. No, they're so, basically laborers. Yeah. For, for, for us to call them sailors is an insult to my intelligence, which is saying uh, a shit. <laughs> um, so, so the sailors, um, they went, uh, roaming the the islands as as gangs and you know looking for the gold, but they were also taking uh, children and women as sex slaves um, and also of course for labor. So um, I, I probably should have said trigger warning before that, but uh, you know uh, there's going to be a part coming up soon. I'm I'm assuming that we're <laughs> definitely going to need the trigger warning. So yeah, so there there's there's a whole there's a whole lot of it. Um, I mean, this go a lot of this stuff just co goes on and on. It's 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 this you know similar stories, um, just told in a, in, a, in a different way. Um, more Columbus quotes: "Let us, in the name of the Holy Trinity, go on sending all the slaves that can be sold." That's that makes me feel real good. Uh, I, I wish I would have. They spoke of, I don't know if you might have captured it in your notes. I failed to, but they go on to speak of different passages, some from Romans, some from Psalms. And it would have been nice to be able to correlate that into uh, the proper spots during this broadcast. Um, just quickly to paraphrase uh, to the best of my knowledge, and I don't know the book or verse in Romans in which they were speaking of, but um, let us bring our light to the nations who have nothing but darkness. So they're essentially saying um, that the only reason this place is considered a country is because we stumbled across it. Even though there was residents, um, indigenous people already there living their lives peacefully, howbeit, or excuse me, albeit, um, that just because they stumbled on it in the name of Christianity, is it is now considered land which is a stretch but <laughs> yeah to, to be cut right um so remind me uh page 14 um once we get to the uh to the puritans um then we'll we'll read uh psalm 2 8 and, and romans 13 too okay okay um so now columbus is like shit there's there's just like it's like no fucking gold here. <laughs> I came here looking for gold. There's just, there's none. There's just these beautiful airwax 
um, who I'm just trying to enslave. So um, there's no no golden fields. Um, and, you know, Spain is like, we gave you 17 ships, 1,200 men. Don't come back empty-handed. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't come through with the gold, but he came through with the slaves. Um, so five hundred of which, I believe, correct? Right. So in in the first embarkment. Yeah. So let's go. Um, let's quote Zin here. In, in the year fourteen ninety five, they went on a great slave raid, rounded up fifteen hundred Arawak men, women, and children, put them in pens guarded by Spaniards and dogs, then picked the five hundred best specimens to load onto ships. Of those 500, 200 died en route. Uh, the rest arrived alive in Spain where they were put up for sale by the archdeacon of the town. It's almost as if that was the Amazon for scumbags back in 1495. Yeah. Um, it's just, it sucks, man. It makes me, it makes me angry because um, there are kids in cages right now. Uh, at the the U.S. Uh, Mexico border, and right here we're talking about um, what put them in pens and and guarded by Spaniards, but they're guarded by ICE, right? Um, right. <laughs> this is 1492. We're in 2021, and 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 not much has changed. And, and you throw into the fact that we're nearing October. These people's habits were of vast nakedness, the heart to, to hardly cover themselves. Right. Okay. And they're being tossed into these huts, if you will, or cages, or whatever you want to term them as. Um, and you know that they're not getting any of the proper coverage, clothing, blankets. Um, so many of which are soon to die off because of that. And also when we get to the part where they're on the ship, they're going to have difficulties as well. Um, I hope I get to the, the part that, that you're talking about and I don't miss it, but here's, here's more brutality for, for the folks. Um, so uh, quoting Zinc Columbus, desperate to pay back dividends to those who had invested, had to make, Good, his promise to fill the ships with gold. In the province of uh, Cacao on Haiti, they ordered all persons 14 years or older to collect a certain quantity of gold every three months. When they brought it, they were given copper tokens to hang around their necks. Indians found without a copper token had their hands cut off and bled to death. It seems like a bit of a... Um... I'm drawing a blank for words here, but it seems like it's going against the exact opposite of what they're trying to happen. It seems like if, okay, they're coming up short on looking for gold because there is no fucking gold. So let's just cut off their hands so they can't do anything else. And what they essentially do, because they didn't have anything remotely close to fuck modern medicine, medicine in general at all, they probably didn't know much of tourniquets, anything. So when they cut their hand off, they would bleed to death. And that was yeah. it. Um, so they were useless at that point. The test um, was impossible. Exactly. So instead of just having them do manual labor or continue to keep trying, they 
killed. And that seems to be the mindset of a lot of people in a lot of different areas through a lot of this book. And it is rather long. <laughs> um, yeah. So, again, it was just like these little bits of dust um, in the rivers that they're trying to that they're. Um, so, again, impossible task. Um, and um, finally, the Arawaks were like dude, like, fuck this. <laughs> fuck you guys. So they try to put up, um, they try to put together uh, an army and, um, you know, just put up some kind of resistance. Um, but, the, you know, their tools were made out of, you know, uh, sugar cane that was sharpened, sharpened to a point. That was their their spear. That was like the, the main um, weapon that they had where, you know, the Spaniards had, um, armor, muskets, horses, swords. Um, so it was, it was really easy to just basically whip some Arawak ass. And, um, so the, the Arawaks, they start to, um, consume, uh, cassava poison and, uh, committing mass suicides. Um, just to save themselves from the brutality of the Spaniards, because um, as much as they were killing them, they also were, they were putting them to, to work with the um, trying to find the gold and then enslaving them and bringing them back to, to Spain. And um, I mean, mothers were, were feeding um, their infants and ki killing, killing their own babies to keep them away from uh, keep them away from these uh, atrocities. So um in two years, through murder, mutilation, or suicide, half of the 250,000 Indians that were on Haiti were dead. Um, it's a mother's natural instinct um, to protect her children. Um, mm -hmm. I, I feel weird speaking about that uh, because I'm not a father, I'm not a mother, but this much can be brutally honest and pretty much self-known by anybody who has a relationship with someone who is a mother. Um, your natural instinct is to protect your children at all costs. And so these mothers were making split second decisions. Um, I don't want to say informed decisions, but more as I'll be damned decisions if the Spaniards are going to be the ones to take my family from me. I would rather feed poison to my children and meet them in the afterlife to try again than let them get their hands on my babies. Right. I'm and gonna go out the way, you know, we the way we want to go out, not the way you we've want to. lived on our land, well, but yeah. In our terms. And all of a sudden it changes in the blink of an eye. And then there were also mothers at certain points throughout chapter one that, and, and basically the Columbus dealing with the Arawaks, that they decided that they were going to drown their children as well, um, just to put them out of their misery and not have to worry about what kind of torture the Spaniards had in store. Yeah. And, and uh, that's rough. 
that's a tough pill to swallow, no matter how negative an outlook you hold on politics, history. Um, like right. I said, I mean, it, most, I'm sorry, most individuals were, uh, were not uh, civilized back then, but regardless, that's uh, a difficult pill to swallow. Right. And it, I mean, even talking about different eras, you know, going back to uh, World War II, um, where, you know, Japanese uh, whole families that, you know, mothers and, you know, taking taking their children with them, you know, jumping off of cliffs, all, you know, committing mass suicides um, because of the um, the propaganda that was out there that, you know, they're going to, you know, Americans are going to enslave you. And, um, you know, this is a, a similar situation. 450 years later. Um, Same thing happened to the, a lot of the Jewish folks in the concentration camps. Right. Um, so it's, it, it's not something that uh, was just dealt with early on. Um, even when civilization did become civilized, um, you still had to deal with monsters and their thought processes on how to go about dealing with everyday people. And uh, most of them did not know how to put together rational thought, let alone uh, give a fuck about humanity. Right. So many times throughout this book, humanity has had to give way to riches or um, bargaining chips or trading platforms or money. Mm -hmm. And this is all symptoms of the things that we now deal with in modern day government. So from 1495, which is the year we're currently in in this book, until 2021, there is a mm -hmm. lot of things that haven't changed. And that deep down is utterly disturbing. Yeah. Like you said, you know, this is Columbus, the Indians and human progress. And you said it very well when you said that or the lack thereof of uh human progress um so there's there's not too many direct quotes um from columbus uh that are left here but um one of the uh chief sources uh going forward for uh the rest of the whole chris columbus uh subject matter is a, a guy named um las casas um and he is the one who um, he transcribed, uh, Columbus's journal. Um, so it, these are still, um, Columbus's, you know, words, um, but maybe not exact because things do get lost in translation, um, things of that sort. So, um, let's see where, you know, where should we start? Cause it's, it's just, <laughs> it, it keeps getting bad. Um, so here's, here's a, a unique account um, that deserves to be quoted at length. Endless testimonies prove the mild and pacific temperament of the natives, but our work was to exasperate, ravage, kill, mangle, and destroy. Small wonder then if they tried to kill one of us now and then. The admiral, it is true, was blind at those who came after him, and he was so anxious to please the king that he committed irreparable crimes against the Indians. Um, it just goes it just goes on and on <laughs> like that um if you want to keep you know hearing all these different 
quotes about um, Columbus from uh, Bartolome de las Casas, then, you know, definitely jump into to the book. Um, we won't cover all of them here, but it go it goes on and on. So, um, you know. You alluded to it. Say, yeah, exactly. Uh, I apologize for stepping on toes once again. Um, it, it, it's it's a difficult thing to do via uh, Skype, Zoom, whatever. Um, but you alluded to it earlier uh, that when the Arawak had an opportunity and they said, fuck this, and they decided to commit suicide, um, their first reaction was to run. And to try and get away. This is our land. We know it better than anybody else. Let's see if we can get away from these people. Right. And whenever they were caught, they were tortured, beaten, and then killed. And hanged. So, right. And hanged. Hanged and burned. Um, I'm not sure why exactly the burning took place. That's something I feel I should have looked up now that we're talking about it. Why, in fact... Uh, early time creation, if you will, or cremation uh, was such a big part, but hanging was a symbol of don't mess with our leadership. That's, mm -hmm. They would put the death of a human body on display to show and manifest their power. Yeah. So, so that, you know, give them, give them a message. I've, I've, um, I think I found a quote from uh, Zinn here. Uh, so they fled were hunted down with dogs and were killed. Um, when the Spaniards took prisoners, they hanged them or burned them to death. And then that begins the uh, the mass suicide. It's uh, they say time plus tragedy equals comedy. And throughout our conversation, I have different things that pop into my head. When you said that they would leash, unleash the dogs, I have. Uh, rest in peace to Mr. Jones, but I have him in the back of my mind saying, run, Mr. Postman. <laughs> Don't let that dog bite you in the ass. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there wishing and hoping that these people could get away from uh, the Spaniards and the crew of Columbus, but it's just, uh, you, you, you try to make light of it, 500 years after right 600 years after and um there's nothing really funny about it but you do what you can to help get yourself through um what took place right and if we don't if if we don't laugh we'll cry right exactly oh. that's what that's exactly what you do you laugh to keep yourself from crying and um not that there's spoilers or spoiler alerts uh many of us have seen firsthand um what's going on in these days and age, but we're going to be dealing with slavery at some point in the next, uh, coming very soon. I think we even delve into it in chapter two, our next chapter as well. And it's hard not to think of uh, Dave Chappelle, which is the greatest comedian of our time, um, and his speakings about slavery and how things went down. And the quote that keeps coming to mind is, oh, look, there's a boat with some white people on it. I'm going to go see what they want. <laughs> and then he's 
in chains. So yeah. it's yeah, nothing has changed. Nothing yeah. has changed. So um one more um let's do one more horrific quote just uh you know kind of burn this into people's uh memories here. The husbands and wives were together only once every eight or ten months. And when they met, they were so exhausted and depressed on both sides, they ceased to procreate. As for the newly born, they died early because their mothers, overworked and famished, had no milk to nurse them. And for this reason, while I was in Cuba, 7,000 children died in three months. Some mothers even drowned their babies from sheer desperation. In this way, husbands died in the mines, wives died at work, and children died from lack of milk. And in a short time, this land, which was so great, so powerful and fertile, was depopulated. My eyes have seen these acts so foreign to human nature, and now I tremble as I write. Um, and that was from uh, Bartolo, uh, Bartolome de las Casas. Uh, the irony of the situation is De Las Casas says, uh, acts that are so, um, can you repeat the quote? Did you close your book? The no, very the last sentence of the quote. Uh, my, my eyes have seen these acts so foreign to human nature, and now I tremble as I write. The irony is, uh, my eyes have seen these acts so foreign to human nature that have become second nature to a newer generation of people uh, with the mistreatment and handling of human life. So um, Bartolome is not alone. Um, he's seen some shit and um, every generation from here on out, from then on out, I guess is the better way to say it, has also went through their own um, periods of genocide, torture, war, whatever you can think of. Uh, but by no means does it get any better um, for longer periods of time. Right. Um, so it's it's believed that, uh, you know, even if some figures were exaggerated uh, by Las Casas, but he's saying there was about 3 million. Um, some scholars are saying there may have been about 1 million. Others are saying there could have been... Um, up to as many as 8 million um, Arawaks and, and Indians. Um, and uh, yeah, there's uh, maybe 60,000 living on the island um, after all that. So, And there was a part of Connecticut or what now is Connecticut um, that they were speaking of. Um, I'm not sure if you have the numbers written down or written down um, in your notes, but there was a part of Connecticut which had a specific number of um, Arawak there as well. And the number in 15, you know what? I might have had this written down. <laughs> Give me one second. It goes from uh, 1550, there was 50,000 left, or excuse me, 1515, there was 50,000 Arawak left. Okay. Uh, 1550, 500 left to 1650, the population of them being zero. Wow. Known left. So it was a complete and utter 
I mean, talk about, uh, you know, definition of genocide, right? Yeah, they uh, they did and came and took care of what they were looking to do. Let me rephrase that. That's a stupid statement. I caught myself. Um, <laughs> they did the exact opposite of what they came and were looking to do. They were coming to the land to try and get rich off of gold, spices, and other means that weren't human and they failed miserably mm -hmm. um so in a last ditch effort they decided to turn to human sale and human trafficking trafficking for yep. sex and labor and so they weren't successful they just got frustrated about being unsuccessful and killed millions upon the way um it's there's a detail that we'll get to, I think, at, at towards the end of the episode um, that makes all of those deaths even worse somehow. Um, so I'll but out there's a little bit of a teaser and uh, can't wait to get to that. Um, and <laughs> I, I picked out a quote um, from Zen specifically for you. Um, all right. Because you were um, talking about discussing. Um, some of these things with uh, some of these subjects with teachers and whether or not this was like um, something that they, that they learned or were they, was it like a deliberate um, omission? So, so here's a quote from Zen. This is not intentional deception. The historian has been trained in a society in which education and knowledge are put forward as technical problems of excellence and not as tools for contending social classes races, nations. So in, in Zinn's opinion, um, it's not an intentional deception, um, but all the historians themselves, um, you know, see, seems to me, they're all indoctrinated too. They've all been propagandized. This is the only information that they have available to them, um, that's the curriculum. That's what they learn. So that's what they teach. And then it's just this uh, vicious cycle of um, misinformation and, at worst, uh, disinformation. There was, uh, I forget the author's name, and I apologize again, um, but there's a part in the book in which they speak about the most knowledgeable writer about Christopher Columbus. And throughout the first the initial pages of a book that he wrote in regards to Christopher Columbus they throw the fact of genocide in there in the middle of a page that takes up no more than one sentence specifically as the deaths of so many people didn't mean anything but he was being praised throughout the rest of the book for his navigational skills and his um his leadership skills and so it, I'll, go, it, I'll go over that real quick for you because I, I i have it here um so uh it was a harvard historian his name is samuel elliott morrison um he says quote the cruel policy initiated by columbus and pursued by his processors resulted in complete genocide. So he does explicitly say 
a complete genocide. However, Zinn goes on to say this is on one page buried halfway into the telling of a grand romance. And uh, the, the quote from Morrison is, he had his faults and his defects, but they were largely the defects of the qualities that made him great. His indomitable will, his superb faith in God, and his own mission as the Christ bearer to lands beyond the seas. His stubborn persistence, despite neglect, poverty, and discouragement. But there was no flaw, no dark side to the most outstanding and essential of all his qualities, his seamanship. Um, that sounds like a lot of ball gargling um, for yeah. one particular individual who was... Um, his greatest quality was supposed to be a seaman. And from what we've bear witness to, he wasn't great at it. Uh, navigational tools back then were primitive. You used the moon, the stars, the sun, um, and maybe there was other tools that were created around that time, barometers, etc. cetera. But uh, nonetheless, he was considered by most to be one of the most skilled at his position. And for him to come up that short and uh it's it, it's just it, it's a it's a crock of shit i, I don't yeah. know um no, there's really yeah. no other way for me to put it. it it seems to me that uh morrison has to say these things because um he is just a columbus fanboy and has to sort of validate um his studies and and his passion um because he he doesn't you know, he doesn't say like, you know, like we've said, he mentions the complete genocide. Um, he doesn't leave that out of his, uh, you know, his publications. Um, but what he does do is he mentions it quickly and buries the lead. Right. So um, it's not a lack of knowledge at that point. It's a it's convenient but, amnesia or a uh, willful willful ignorance yes um because he does allude to it he does um say hey this man killed off a whole population of american indian um or native americans um so the fact that he does turn into what you just called him a fanboy or um even maybe he was just put so much time and effort into the research of one human being that he felt no other way to stamp the man. But regardless of why he said that, um, the proof is in the pudding. And the way that Christopher Columbus handled himself um, and the way that we praised him throughout our youths um, and pretty much most of the people that are listening's use mm -hmm. uh, kind of makes you, it, it makes you feel, I got to borrow a word from my nephews. It makes you feel icky. It, it's, <laughs> it, it's just fucking bad. It's we just celebrated bad. this man for yeah. years. I, I mean, he's still celebrated. I, it's in it, many it's only, groups. He is. Yeah. And it, you know, it's only come to my attention, you know, within the last couple of years that, you know, um, people are calling it Indigenous Day because he 
Christopher Columbus is the worst. It's a shit bag. Exactly. And we spoke last week, just to reiterate, both you and I got into this for similar reasons. And most of the main reasoning behind it was I'm an older man. I, I turned 40 in May. Um, you're five years, six years younger than I am. Um, for me to be learning about these things two years ago, 38, 39 years old, and just now being able to piece together how things actually went down in history makes your stomach turn and not just a little bit. It makes you feel awful. And um, we got into this to try and educate those around us so they can have a better understanding of the past to enlighten their future. Um, and one of the biggest reasons why you and I do this as well is for the children so that they can be educated by the parents in the proper way so that we don't make the mistake of having them repeat history. So um, Christopher Columbus did what he deemed necessary. By no means was it right. By no means was it uh, condoned or justified. But in a savage time, in a savage land, he killed off an entire generation of people and in a short amount of time. Yeah. No matter what kind of civilized or uncivilized human interaction you considered, and no matter what time or course of history this happened, that's just incorrect. So we're already coming up on an hour. Um we're only halfway through the chapter. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of live production right now um, and see if you want to continue on. Uh, you know, it might, it might take us two hours to cover this, this chapter, or, um, you know, we just make it a, a two parter and uh, let's cram what we can and, and, and go from there. I mean, it, I, I think we're, we're hitting a groove. Um, maybe we can get through the rest of it. And we've alluded to a lot of killing. Uh, I think the people at home are getting the point of that. Um, the shit's going to continue. So maybe we can condense it and get it done in a half hour. If it takes two hours, so be it. You right, have well, to listen to it on one and a half speed, folks. We apologize. <laughs> what you should do anyway, because it, there's just a lot of empty space. I read at a fourth anyway. grade level. <laughs> and I listen at a third grade level. So, <laughs> okay. Um, well, like I said, some live production. Um, so let me stop this recording and start a new one because um, we, like I said, we hit the uh, the hour mark there. Um, so let me save that. This is good. This is good stuff for. <laughs> Oh. Tell the tell the folks the uh, the background story on that. <laughs> um, I had this uh, delusion when we <laughs> first started uh, the idea of video streaming our podcast. Rob and I have done podcasts before, but it's mostly about things that, in the grand scheme of life, don't matter. Sports. Um, 
fantasy football things, sports. Um, <laughs> More sports. So, More sports. so I was trying to look aristocratic. Um, in case you couldn't tell by my <laughs> prop, and uh, I wanted to go the route of Inspector Gadget with the have the book cracked open like this <laughs> as I'm reading, and then do one of these numbers. <laughs> Welcome in. I'm Joshua Bottomtooth. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, I'm Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, this one does not blow bubbles. So it doesn't. I, that's my, my favorite part is it, it doesn't blow bubbles, and you can't even smoke real tobacco out of it. It is a true prop. It is a prop. Yes, I could use it as a costume when I go as Sherlock Holmes, or, uh, <laughs> but that's about it. <laughs> Or uh, Christoph Waltz in uh, Inglorious Bastards, like we talked about. Exactly. All right, so we're at uh, part two. We're going to shift it a little bit. Um, so I just want to start off, start off uh, part two with a, a Zen quote here. My viewpoint in telling the history of the United States is different, that we must not accept the memory of states as our own. Nations are not communities and never have been. The history of any country presented as the history of a family conceals fierce conflicts of interest, sometimes exploding, most often repressed, between conquerors and conquered, masters and slaves, capitalists and workers, dominators and dominated in race and sex. And in such a world of conflict, a world of victims and executioners, it is the job of the thinking people, as Albert Cam has suggested, not to be on the side of the executioners. I think one of the greatest points that Zen alludes to in a um, almost a halftime of chapter one is where he tells you where he's coming from mm -hmm. by writing this book. And he said that... Um, I don't want to give people the wrong impression, so I might as well get this out of the way now. This book will be told from the point of view of the oppressed, essentially. And uh, one of the quotes he used um, is, the way of the poor is not, or excuse me, the cry of the poor is not always just, but if you don't listen to it, you'll never know what justice is. And that one kind of struck home to me because at times people are going to come up with false information. As you see with modern day media, um, Facebook, social, or excuse me, social media platforms all, all across the board. Um, and it's your job to be educated enough to decipher what's true, what's false, and then in turn, disseminate that information to the people in your life that you care about. So right. um, he said here that there could be false cries, but if you don't listen to them, regardless, 
true or false, you'll never understand what true justice is. And we're still looking for true justice in 2021. Amen, brother. Uh, so let me, I, I will give you the, the Zen quote that, uh, that you're referring to just so people, and then take I just notes. gave the goddamn quote. <laughs> take no. notes here because there's so many things that he says in this quote that, um, you know, you're going to want to do your own research on. So, uh, Zin says, I prefer to try to tell the story of the discovery of America from the viewpoint of the Arawaks, of the Constitution from the standpoint of the slaves, of Andrew Jackson as seen by the Cherokees, of the Civil War as seen by the New York Irish, of the Mexican War as seen by the deserting soldiers of Scott's army, of the rise of industrialism as seen by the young women of the Lowell textile, textile mills, of the Spanish-American War as seen by the Cubans, the conquest of the Philippines as seen by the black soldiers of Luzon, the Gilded Age as seen by Southern farmers, the First World War as seen by socialists, the Second World War as seen by pacifists, the, the New Deal as seen by blacks in Harlem, the post-war American empire as seen by peons in Latin America, and so on to the limited extent that any one person however he or she strains, can see history from the standpoint of others. So that's what all of us should be trying to do, right? We should be that old trope, putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes and walking a mile or two in those shoes so that you can see where they're coming from. Um, you know, people are just, I understand the anxiety of worrying about yourself and your family, and, you know, family's number one, but there are also, there are other people in the world who may need a little bit of help um, and for any number of reasons, whether it, you know, if it's a, a person who is disabled or uh, somebody who grew up in, an, in a neighborhood who didn't have, uh, you know, good uh, resources, like a, a good education. Um, Impoverished communities. Right, right. So, um <laughs> Uh, yeah, just try to think of others as you go along, try to do, you know, what's best for your family as well as other people, you know, at the very least have them have other people in mind. I mean, if, you know, the, this world is about love, let's, let's love each other. Like why there should be no wars, you know, whatsoever. I understand like, uh, you know, in the case of the Arawaks, maybe they could have tried to, um, been a little bit more prepared with some kind of, you know, better weapon. Um, but they didn't imagine somebody coming across the ocean and wanting to slaughter them. Now we, you know, now we know that there are some bad people out there and we need to um, defend ourselves, but that doesn't mean uh, you get to go out and, uh, do imperialism and colonialism and go and steal people's oil and, and murder them just to enrich yourself and, and, and your country. So um, go ahead. One of the main talking points that Rob hit to in that quote was he went through, and that kind of gives you a preview of some of the things that we're going to be talking to in detail, which is one of the reasons why I love the quote, because it does an automatic 
teaser for what they call us in the business. Mm -hmm. It gives you a sense of what's coming up and how far along it is coming up. But I think the best thing about taking the view of the oppressed is that most of us are more familiar with that than being a part of the 1% or the middle class even. Um, it's important to understand that um, things don't always happen uh, the way that they're they're supposed to. Like, uh, for instance, Columbus and where he wanted to end up. But um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is. Um, we should be more open to people that uh, are having difficulties in life, um, those who are um, dealing with problems, everyday problems, and just try and be more compassionate, more empathetic, and have human nature take place over greed and, and money. Um, I stumbled um, on my words there. I didn't get out clearly what I was trying to do, but you get the genesis of where I'm coming from. Yeah. So um, let's do one more uh, Zen quote here, and then we'll we'll move on to um, a, another just a, a real piece of work in uh, uh, Hernando Cortez. So um, Zen says, if history is to be creative, to anticipate a possible a possible future without denying the past. It should, I believe, emphasize new possibilities by disclosing those hidden episodes of the past when, even if in brief flashes, people showed their ability to resist, to join together, occasionally to win. I am supposing, or perhaps only hoping, that our future may be found in the past's fugitive moments of compassion rather than in its solid centuries of warfare. So, um, the part that I keep thinking about the most is where he says, I am supposing or perhaps only hoping um, that our future may be found um, through, you know, moments of compassion. Um, and I'm, I'm right there with him. However, um, this is something that I alluded to last week um, with the, the rate of our, you know, oil consumption, all of the, uh, the issues that we have environmentally, there's, there's no more time left. Um, so major changes have to come real soon. Um, Zinn is alluding to like a, a sort of quiet revolution, right? So he, he's alluding more to, um, uh, I think the point of the book, um, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but, um, was to, you know, He's on the side of laborers here, um, and he's he's saying wherever you work, you should unionize. Um, the the you know people should own the the means of production. Um, you know if not, they should have um, you know just certain rights like vacation days. Uh, you know thing, things like that. Some people don't have paid vacation days. Some people don't have um, employer. Um, insurance. So, so he's talking about like this sort of 
quiet revolution um, by having all these little individual battles won, all these small group battles won by uh, unionizing uh, at the workplace. Um, and, you know, that was a really, really great idea when, uh, you know, this was first copyrighted in 1980. Um, but this is 41 years later and things have just gotten uh, progressively worse and um, so something's got to be done real soon. Um, so like we were saying last week, try to do something locally. Um, and yeah, I politics, know, I don't politics know. Isn't is. a, I'm sorry. Politics isn't something that happens once every four years. You got to get involved at the local level of government and find your candidates that you believe will make substantial change. And by doing that, you can actually rejuvenate your hope in humanity and try and get some things done. Because once you get to the level of presidency, they have already been corrupted by oil and the NRA and Big Pharma and whatever other institution that has shit tons of money to throw at them mm -hmm. to influence how policy is determined, they've already been infiltrated and they've already been uh, contaminated, if you will. So your only chance to make change in government is to get into it at the local level and hopefully that from the ground up, they can build the communities that you are hoping for. Um, of course, it's, imp it's important to go out and vote um, for who's going to be your president and vice president and judges and uh, mayors and things like that. But it, it, it starts at the local level, not just... We're, we're talking about cities, townships, not just uh, for Chicago and the United States and even larger, you know, or excuse me, not even larger than the United States, but you get what I'm saying. Um, you got to start at the bottom up to hopefully make a change. Um, so let's, we can move on to, um, so after Columbus, what he did to the Arawaks, um, Hernando Cortez did to uh, the Aztecs of Mexico. And then, um, so I'll just, I'll try to give like one or two examples. So we're not, you know, beating the proverbial horse. And um, there's also, there's examples from Pizarro, uh, what he did to the Incas of Peru. And then of course, what the English settlers of Virginia and uh, New England did to the uh, Powhatans and the Pequot Indians. All right. So, it gets so good. Um, so, okay, there was a new Spanish Armada sent with uh, Hernando Cortez, and um, he's just this he's white guy who comes ashore in uh, Veracruz. And the Aztecs thought there was this, he, he was this man god who uh, died like 300 years before that. And um, with this, this Aztec man God promised to, to come back. So they see Cortez coming and they're like, holy shit, he's white. Um, it, this might be, uh, I, I, 
I hope I don't butcher this name. Uh, name. <laughs> I can't even say name. How am I going to say the name of the name? Uh, Quetzalcoatl. So they think that he's Quetzalcoatl and um, the, uh, what's it? What's the guy's name? So the, the head Aztec. Um, oh, uh, Montezuma. So he's like, you know, um, he gives him these enormous treasures because he thinks he is this Aztec man god. Um, but while he's giving him all these treasures and uh, gold and silver, he's also like trying to um, basically buy him off and send him back on his way um, because Montezuma had it how he wanted it there and he didn't want some Aztec man god fucking up his shit, basically. Right. Um, so in Cholulu, uh, this is from Zin, uh, he invited the headmen of Cholula nation to the square. And when they came with thousands of unarmed retainers, Cortez's many army of Spaniards posted around the square with cannon, armed with crossbows, mounted on horses, massacred them down to the last man. Then they looted the city and moved on, where their cavalcade of murder was over and they were in Mexico City. Montezuma was dead and the Aztec civilization shattered was in the hands of the Spaniards. And all of this is told in the Spaniards' own accounts. So just more, it's more genocide. That's all. It's a little bit. It, it seems as if that was a way of life um, in early civilization. So um, like we said, don't be surprised by it when we talk about it even more in the upcoming chat. Um, God. So do I, do I just want to skip ahead to, uh, let's go to a, a quote from, who is this from? Powhatan. Um, and he he addressed this directly to a name everybody is familiar with, John Smith. Uh, I have seen two generations of my people die. I know the difference between peace and war better than any man in my country. I am now grown old and must die soon. My authority must descend to my brothers, then to my two sisters, and then to my two daughters. I wish them to know as much as I do and that your love to them may be like mine to you. Why will you take by force what you may have quietly by love? Why will you destroy us who supply you with food? What can you get by war? We can hide our provisions and run into the woods. Then you will starve for wronging your friends. Why are you jealous of us? We are unarmed and willing to give you what you ask if you come in a friendly manner. And not so simple as not to know that it is much better to eat good meat, sleep comfortably, live quietly with my wives and children, laugh and be merry with the English, and trade for their copper and hatchets than to run away from them and to lie in cold in the woods, feed on acorns, roots, and such trash, and be so hunted that I can neither eat nor sleep. In these wars, my men must sit up watching, and if a twig break, they all cry out, Here comes Captain Smith! So I must end my miserable life. Take away your guns and swords, the cause of all your our jealousy, or you may all die in the same manner. 
And that, that last part kind of reminds me of the old, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword kind of deal. Right. Um, uh, for, for people that weren't 100% familiar with Powhatan, um, in modern day terminology, he was uh, a leader of the Algonquin people um, that are later um, found in Eastern Virginia. And um, it is estimated that there were about 14 to 2100 Powhatan people in Eastern Virginia when the English colonized in Jamestown in 1607. And we talked about genocide again. So that means that out of 21,000 people, um, once again, the numbers aren't exact, but there were close to a million Algonquin Indians that were killed off um, during this period of time. Um, so <laughs> this is another just... Um... The governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop, created the excuse to make Indian land by declaring the area legally a, quote, vacuum. The Indians, he said, had not subdued the land and therefore had only a natural right to it, but not a civil right. A natural right did not have legal standing. And I'm just like, what a piece of shit. My book says that I have um, civil right and you have natural right. So I'm right. and You're wrong. It's fucking. It's it's no different than the judicial system of today, though. I mean, um, if you have resources and somebody has something that you want slash need, you're going to be able to find, by any means necessary, the ability to get what you want whether it involves rewording, recategorizing laws. Um, that wasn't necessarily a, a uh, set in stone law, as you can see, is all they did was change the, um, what was it, c civic a, right? Um, yeah, it's a natural right, but not a civil right. Exactly. So um, if the government has something they want or somebody has something that you want, they will go to any length to take it from you. And that just is something that you better become familiar with as well. Right. So these are the, uh, in regards to the, the pilgrims um, who came to uh, New England um, and the, the Puritans um, appeal to the Bible um, so here's your here's your Psalm 2.8 that we referenced earlier. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thine possession. Um, and Zinn says, and to justify their use of force to take the land, they cited Romans 13.2. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So more hiding behind uh, religious, uh, just re religious bullshit. Um, and 
something that occurred to me that I, I never really thought about before, but the, the Puritans were already a sort of uh, a version of capitalist Christians. Like they, they already remind me of like the evangelicals who, you know, try to take people's money by, you know, through fear mongering. Yeah. They were a part of the church of England in the late 16th century that started to become a, a big thing. Um, the Puritans, uh, they were members of a reformed version of Christianity. Um, and again, the the Pequots, um, they themselves are like, dude, fuck this, fuck you, because they're they're trying to um, they're taking you know children as hostages, um, you know. Let's say so. Here, here's here's a quick quote. They had the commission to put to death the men of Black Island, but to spare the women and children and bring them away, and to take possession of the island, and from thence to go to the Pequods and demand the murderers of Captain Stone and other English and one thousand fathom of wampum for damages, etc., and some of their children as hostages, which if they should refuse, were obtained by force. So again, the the Pequots were like. Uh, no? How about no? Um, so uh, massacres took place on, on both sides. So now there's just, it's it's all out war. Um, but the, the English developed this tactic of warfare used earlier by Cortez, which was uh, deliberate attacks on non-combatants for the purpose of terrorizing the enemy. Um uh, here's a quote um, regarding uh, Mason's attack on the Pequot village. Mason proposed to attack, to avoid attacking Pequot warriors, which would have overtaxed his unseasoned, unreliable troops. And that goes back to what we've mentioned about how these guys are—they're not warriors; they're just laborers that they that they brought over on on these ships. Battle, as such, was not his purpose. Battle is only one of the ways to destroy an enemy's will to fight. Massacre can accomplish the same end with less risk, and Mason had determined that massacre would be his objective. So let's not do a fair fight if we are going to fight. Let's just kill all the non-combatants and break these people's uh, will and ju just make them broken people so that they don't, they don't even fight back. And... Um, the war with Mason, I believe, took place in 1636, and um, 700 prisoners, excuse me, Pequot pr prisoners, uh, were captured and sold into slavery in Bermuda and in in the West Indies, and other survivors were uh, dispatched into various different tribes, and I believe they became completely extinct um late 1800s slash very very early 1900s so once again um a whole tribe of native american people with some of which um even merged with the algonquin at one point uh to kind of make up a mixture of tribes mm -hmm. um I don't know if it was a defense mechanism or if it was just um, the sharing of land, but uh, either way, 
the Pequot were completely wiped out by um, early 19th century, or excuse me, 1900s. Yeah, I'm glad you have these figures because that that was one thing that I wasn't uh, kind of concentrating on. It's just uh, it's there's okay. so much well, information in there. It's hard to decipher what's going to be best for the audience to take in, what's best for us to give information. So uh, once again, we're doing our best to give you the information that we deem uh, prudent and uh, we'll go from there. Um, so uh, this is a quote from Dr. Cotton Mather, um, Puritan theologian, and um, in my own words, an, an all-around piece of shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you if you want to learn more about this huge piece of shit, um, go ahead and and uh, read um, the the book that I that I just finished that I cannot uh, think of now. The uh, stamp from the beginning, um, the definitive history of racist ideas in America. Um, so they had, so Mason goes on this raid in the Pequot village and uh, Cotton Mather says, it was supposed that no less than 600 Pequot souls were brought down to hell that day. Um, That's a hell of a way to put it. Yeah. Just automatically assuming that uh, because they weren't them that, they were savages and uh, lacking simple um, justices of human decency. Um, going back to your figures, the, the, it says the official figure on the number of Pequots now in Connecticut is 21 persons. That was as of 1972. So, uh, that's just think about that for a moment. Just we go to 1636 being between 14,000 and 21,000 to 21 left of a tribe of people um, in the 1900s. It's, it's, it's awful. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that I I really wasn't considering um, while reading some of the, you know going through these these figures and how bad it was, um, so many of them died from diseases that were introduced by the whites um, by the Christians who were Bible loving, uh, rub it in your face at any point that were the ones that came over and gave different what we've referred to now as uh, STDs uh, to different members or to different groups of these people. And it's, and they ended up getting killed off by lesser methods of uh, extraction of things as simple as small, not that smallpox was simple, but STDs, smallpox, things like that ended up being having many of them meet their demise as well. Um, yeah, I, we're talking about uh, Indian population of around 10 million um, that, you know, live north of Mexico um, to about 1 million. Yikes. Um, so, okay, let's do, I'm going to move on to a, 
another Zinc quote here. We only have a few more pages to go. So, uh, you know, bear with us. I hope folks are out there um, enjoying it and, um, you know, just thinking about some of these things, um, some things you're going to agree with, some things not, um, but just, you know, more, uh, more food for thought. Was all this bloodshed and deceit from Columbus and Cortez, Pizarro, the Puritans, a necessity for the human race to progress from sa savagery and civilization? Was Morrison right in burying the story of genocide inside a more important story of human progress? Perhaps a persuasive argument can be made, as it was made by Stalin when he killed peasants for industrial progress in the Soviet Union, as it was made by Churchill explaining the bombings of Dresden and Hamburg, and Truman explaining Hiroshima. But how can the judgment be made if the benefits and losses cannot be balanced because the losses are either unmentioned or mentioned quickly? He goes on to say uh, that quick disposal might be acceptable. Unfortunate, yes, but it had to be done. But is it acceptable to the poor of Asia, Africa, Latin America, or the prisoners of Soviet labor camps, or the blacks in urban ghettos, or the Indians on reservations, to the victims of the progress which benefits a privileged minority in the world? Was it acceptable or just inescapable to the miners and railroaders of America, the factory hands, the men and women who died in the hundreds of thousands from accidents or sickness where they worked or where they lived, casualties of progress, and even the privileged minority, must it not reconsider with the practicality which even privilege cannot abolish? The value of its privileges, when they become threatened by the anger of the sacrificed, whether in organized rebellion, unorganized riot, or simply those brutal individual acts of desperation labeled crimes by law and the state. If there are necessary sacrifices to be made for human progress, is it not essential to hold the principle that those who be sacrificed must make the decision themselves? Martin Luther King Jr. said that riots are the voice of the uh, unheard. Exactly. And the way that Zinn, he, how do I phrase this without sounding insulting to him? Um, he's an intelligent man, but he's clearly white collar as being an author. However, he is so abundantly on the side of the working man and the hardworking man and those that are pressed and doing their best to make their way throughout um, history that um, he wants you to understand the plight of the everyday man instead of siding on the, um, or taking the sides of those and the upper 1% in, in most cases. Um, so I'm going to go back to something that I, that I teased um, since we're, we're going to start wrapping up soon. Um, Zinn says, what did people in Spain get out of all that death and brutality visited on Indians of the Americas for a brief period in history, there was glory of a Spanish empire in the Western hemisphere. As Hans Koning sums it up in his book, Columbus, His Enterprise. For all the gold and silver stolen and shipped to Spain, 
did not make the Spanish people richer. It gave their kings an edge in the balance of power for a time, a chance to hire more mercenary soldiers for their wars. They ended up losing those wars anyway, and all that was left was a deadly inflation, a starving population, the rich richer, the poor poorer, and a ruined peasant class. So basically, the complete genocide was all for naught. Happy Columbus Day again. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I, I mean, once again, we're, we're, we're beating the proverbial uh, drum here, or horse, as you put it. It's it's same old shit. Um, I, I, uh, there's not much you can say to justify how things uh, took place. Um, and it just makes it that much awful to even, to even try and put words to it. Yeah. Um, let's see. So we can move on to... Um, Move past Columbus, and let's see. We can move on to um, the Iroquois, who were, uh, to put it, frankly, they were fucking rad. Um, in the in the villages of the Iroquois, land was owned in common and worked in common. A French Jesuit priest who encountered them in the 1650s wrote, No poorhouses are needed among them because they are neither merchants or paupers. Their kindness, humanity, and courtesy not only makes them liberal with what they have, but causes them to possess hardly anything except in common. Um, and not liberal in like the modern liberal sense, but um, just generous with the things that they that they do have and just looking out for each other. Um, uh, I think one of the best things um, for me when it comes to uh, the Iroquois was the way that their children were brought up. And it, it says uh, children in Iroquois society were taught the cultural heritage of their people and solidarity with the tribe, but also were taught to be independent and not to submit to overbearing authority, which kind of put it on the lines that they almost learned from their kind of counterparts' predecessors that preparation is key. And we know that we might encounter some of the things that other tribes have encountered. So let's not kneel down. Um, Let's prepare ourselves for the worst. But to also question authority. Um, exactly. Overbearing authority. Like, just don't, um, you know, reminds me of, like, Noam Chomsky's book, um, Manufacturing Consent, where, you know, most people get their news from mainstream media, um, and they're just kind of spoon-fed that and um, take it, you know, take it to heart when most of that is uh, propaganda. 
on on both sides, right? Um, so, you know, we got Fox News for far right, um, MSNBC, um, <laughs> not too far left. Um, that that there will we'll, that's more like uh, liberal for for the times, but you know, um, for guys like us who are leftist. Uh, none of that stuff means anything to us because we know it's just it's more uh, propaganda from uh, you know corporate Democrats. Um, yeah, that's a that's a great point about the uh, about how the kids are are brought up there. Um, it so said that they were a very patient people too, and that the when when it came to punishing their children, they didn't insist on uh, using harsh punishment. Um, even when it came to like toilet training and allowing their children to learn self-care, um, all of that was a sharp contrast to generations and different cultures before them. So um, I think that's a virtuous part of the Iroquois people that patience mixed with the take no shit attitude could mm -hmm. give you a deadly combination. Um, in certain aspects, or at least when it came to a fighting spirit. So let's, uh, let's wrap up. I got, we got the two, two last quotes. So we got a quote. Um, Gary Nash describes Iroquois culture, no laws and ordinances, sheriffs and constables, judges and juries or courts or jails. The apparatus of authority in European societies were to be found in the Northeast woodlands prior to European arrival. Yet boundaries of acceptable behavior were firmly set. Though priding themselves on the autonomous individual, the Iroquois maintained a strict sense of right and wrong. He who stole another's food or acted invalorously in war was shamed by his people or ostracized from their company until he had atoned for his actions and demonstrated to their satisfaction that he had morally purified himself. Uh, last one here. It is the manner among us Indians that if any such accident happen, we do redeem the life of a man that is so slain with a 100 arms length of beads. And since that you are here strangers and come into our country, you should rather conform yourselves to the customs of our country than impose yours upon us. So again, the Iroquois were uh, just... <laughs> they were fed up with the with their shit. So, um, and and you don't want to say uh, it's refreshing, but um, or it's about time. But it, that's exactly what it is. It's it's finally a group that said enough is enough. Um, other groups had that will be damned attitude where we'll take our lives before we let you do it. However, with the Iroquois, um, it was more of a Muhammad Ali attitude with, uh, we're going down swinging. That's exactly right. Um, we got a, a, a couple of comments um, in, the, in the chat. Um, I'll just read this, this bottom one from uh, Raymond Smith's. Uh, Fox News is not far right. Breitbart, maybe. Um, 
they're pretty they're pretty close. Uh, maybe Newsmax, maybe uh, a little more extreme than than Fox News, but but Fox News is still um, you know just Republican uh, propaganda. It's it's pretty far right. Um, MSNBC and CNN very far left, not even close. N- like <laughs> um, to to steal a line from you, um, essentially. You have Republican and Republican light. Um, so to say something is far left or Democratic far left in CNN is, uh, I value your opinion and I, I'm grateful for your listen. Uh, but and the comments, let's, yeah. let's agree to disagree on that. Right. One. It'll um, just be a agree to disagree. Yeah. But, you uh, know, Fox, maybe- Fox News is. Uh, anything but center um and if you do the research on how the uh network was started i think that would prove pretty obvious and maybe we could start next week's show with a little bit about that just to get back to those who are taking time to listen and comment we appreciate you um differing of opinions does not mean that uh there's any ill will but uh no, I mean, and that's why we're here. We're here to have those difficult conversations, um, you know, with with people, um, and that's why we we're trying to get the word out about you know facts in in this book because most people don't, you know, they don't even have the foundation of this um, history. They they get a sort of uh, propagandized, whitewashed history um, growing up in school. Um, so let's see. Um, let's finish with, with this. I think this is a, uh, a good quote to kind of, uh, end things here. So John Collier, an American scholar who lived among Indians in the 1920s and 1930s in the American Southwest said of their spirit, could we make it our own? There would be an eternally inexhaustible earth and a forever lasting peace. Um, Zinn goes on to say, perhaps there is some romantic mythology in that, um, even allowing for the imperfection of myths, it is enough to make us question for that time and ours, the excuse of progress and the annihilation of races and the telling of history from the standpoint of the conquerors and leaders of Western civilization. Um, the, the whole, the, the part about, you know, we make it our own. There could be an eternally inexhaustible earth and a forever lasting peace. I mean, sounds sounds lovely. But, it does, uh, but unfortunately, so far away from it. It's it's unfathomable, and um, it would take a lot of work to even get close to uh, a respectable um, place for us to be um, as a. Uh, a human civilization, let alone what um, you just uh, um, described it as. So um, I think that's enough genocide killing and uh, (laughs) it it, it truly is. um, You and I both chose to do this and I am not complaining in the slightest, but it truly is exhausting to think about over and over and over again the plight that 
the American Indian had to deal with when people stumbled upon their countries. Um, and not just one tribe, two tribes, three tribes, all of them encountered um, nothing but uphill battles uh, from the time people stepped on their land. It was never in a sharing mode, which is the way that they presented themselves originally to the newcomers. It was always in a, it's time for your extinction. So yeah. Um, anything you wanted to add in regards to this week's episode? Um, no, I think we're, yeah, we're, we're good on, on all the genocide um, for, uh, Next week, we'll be starting with uh, chapter two, um, drawing the color line. I have not read any of this yet. Um, I haven't gone over it. Um, well, I was going to so, say you've read it, but it was eons ago. Yeah. Um, so I don't have anything in particular to tease, but um, you know, if folks want to do their own research. You could do your research. Um, I'm going to give you a couple points that we're going to talk about. Um, this is about where uh, the arrival of ships in North America in 1619. Um, we're going to do some quoting of W.E.B. Uh, e. Du Bois on the color line. We're going to get into um, Congolese leaders and... Uh, why it was a penalty for Portugal and anyone who puts their feet on the ground there. Um, it's going to be once again, along the similar lines of what we dealt with today and this evening. However, um, we already gave you the forewarning that this was uh, going to be a theme. So yeah. Um, next week, we're going to be kind of getting away from the American Indian and dealing with the plight of the African American people. Um, and how that went about in 1690 and settling in the Virginian areas. I can't so, wait. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it myself. And, uh, I think next week I'm going to need an energy drink because when you said, Hey, are you ready to go? Or do you want to do a part two next week? I'm, I was raring. I'm like, <laughs> let's do it. And then I hit a wall that 4 a.m. in the morning wall. And I think for the last half hour, I've just been trying to spit out things to contribute to you, but it's been coming out as a bunch of incoherent bullshit. So forgive me. Um, I will do a better job of that. And we're not going to go two hours next week. We'll have a more condensed version. So, um, or if we do have to go longer, maybe we'll do two episodes, but we'll yeah. see from, we'll totally. see how uh, your opinions are. Maybe we'll put that up as a poll or something on Patreon and um, go from there. So um, before I let Rob take us home, um, I guess we should have did this at the beginning. I'm Josh Catlow. You can find me on Twitter at, at Joshua Catlow. And Facebook at Joshua Patrick, the same at Instagram at Joshua Patrick. Um, I share thoughts about a people's history of the United States throughout the week. And we plug the show and the blog, uh, or excuse me, and the uh, podcast. And I also do some blogging throughout the week in regards to the book as well. So, Rob, take us home, brother. 
Um, you can follow me on Instagram, zobf37, T-O-B-F-37. Um, that'll be the best place to uh, um, see some of the, the content that I'm putting out there. And um, if you have anything in particular you want to say or share with did us. Did we really freeze? And did no. we really? No. No? No, I don't think so. Oh my um, God, man. I'm, I'm sitting there and it's just you <laughs> staring and it's not moving and I couldn't hear a word. And I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Wait, we froze with eight minutes left. I can hear you fucking wildly clicking over there for no good reason. I don't know what you're doing. Uh, it, um, it froze on my end. Okay. <laughs> pay, pay your internet, people. <laughs> now he froze. Um, so uh, shoot us an email at uh, revolutionaryroulette at gmail dot com and um maybe uh josh will <laughs> unfreeze at some point um so thanks for joining us thanks for the the comments and um you can catch us later as a podcast it'll be on we're on spotify uh we are on google podcast apple podcast acast pocket cast every I'll kind guess. of cast out there and uh yeah that's it we'll uh we'll, we'll see everybody next week we appreciate everybody out there uh shout out to uh ken thanks for everybody those but daniel tobariche and uh <laughs> i'll let your boys <laughs>